Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. This is the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science and technology with me, Chris Smith, and with Adam Murphy. This week we are looking at the future of medicine, phenomics, including the toilet that analyses what you put down it. And in the news, sending wine into space, new insights into the origin of life and why a lack of sleep might give you the munchies. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, first, do you have trouble understanding what others are saying in noisy places? For instance, does this background din make speech much harder to follow? If so, new research this out this week might explain why. Researchers in the US have found that high-frequency sounds play a key role in the intelligibility of speech. And if you can't hear them properly, you struggle in noisy places. But... These critical frequencies are usually not routinely checked in hearing tests, bizarrely, and perhaps they ought to be, as Adam heard from Cincinnati Children's Hospital, Ohio's Lena Motlag-Zeder and David Moore. So in a normal audiology exam, they generally check out frequencies between about 250 hertz and either 4,000 or 8,000 hertz, where 250 hertz is low pitch sound and four or 8,000 are, are very high pitched. But actually, healthy young people can hear up to 20,000 hertz, 20 kilohertz. Audiologists have tended not to pay attention to that extended high frequency between 8 and 20 kilohertz, partly because most of the energy of sound is at lower frequencies. And we know from everyday experience of using telephones and so forth, we don't actually need to use those extended high frequencies, at least in normal listening conditions. And, Lena, now that we've set the groundwork with David, can you explain to me the experiment you've run? We recruited uh, young adults, more than 60% of them less than 30 years old. And we surprisingly found more than half of them have extended high-frequency hearing loss, which was related to their self-reported difficulty listening to speech in noisy environment. So we first started with a routine audiology uh, test that is like hearing tests. When you go to visit uh, an audiologist, you send some pure tones with different pitches and intensities, and you ask them to uh, respond to the sound, even if 
it's soft to obtain the minimum amount of things that they can hear. And then after that, we use the speech and noise test. We wanted to see if we give access to high-frequency hearings, very high-frequency hearings, how the speech understanding uh, will be for these participants. So surprisingly, when we put the cutoff of the filter, giving access to frequency above 8 kilohertz, the score improved significantly. So it shows that listeners could use these frequencies to understand the speech and noise. And why is it that not having these high frequencies means you can't pick noise out of crowds so well? Understanding speech mainly depends on high frequencies because high frequencies can provide intelligibility or clarity. And we need to hear um, high frequency parts of the speech to follow the conversation in noisy environment. When you have high frequency hearing loss as a result of age, noise or autotoxic drugs that mainly affects high frequency range of hearing, you cannot easily follow a speech like a person that have normal hearing in these frequencies. What do you want people to take away from this research? I think this gives us an opportunity for some sort of personalized medicine because it's important to realize that some people have this problem while others don't. And we can then tailor our intervention, be it protection of hearing or even some new drugs which are coming online to prevent hearing loss to the people who really need them. That is very good to hear. David Moore and Lena Motlag-Zader there. Uh, Their work has just been published in the journal PNAS. Now, it's a question that no one ever tires of asking. Where did we all come from and how did life begin? One theory is that deep sea vents where mineral-rich warm water issues from the planet's interior played a key role. Here, the conditions could have been just right to allow simpler molecules to link up and form the crucial oil-based membranes that enclose cells. Now, nice though that theory was, no one had yet managed to prove that it is indeed possible. Until now, that is. Because by recreating conditions very similar to a subsea vent in his lab, UCL's Sean Jordan has made it work. And he told Katie Haler how and why these vents are so critical to the process. So they're really unique in that they're formed with an alkaline fluid. And four and a half billion years ago, when we think uh, first life would have uh, emerged, you have an acidic ocean an alkaline fluid inside a vent, and it's almost like a battery. So a positive charge on one side, negative on the other, and this provides the energy that would allow you to create the first organic molecules. And then you can go through stages of more complex chemistry. We can concentrate molecules inside of the vents because of their internal structure, and you can form these non-living cells that eventually become living cells. We've thought about hydrothermal vents and origin of life for a little while now. So what was the specific problem you were trying to solve with this study? There are many theories for the origin of life and alkaline hydrothermal vents have a lot going for them. In previous research, no one has been able to form these cells under alkaline salty conditions. So that's a big hit for this theory because if all life is cellular, we were able to form them for the first time and we think it's a big kind of boost for this theory. How on earth do you make what came before the cell? What is that? Modern cells are formed with phospholipids. So these are quite large molecules. They have tails that are uh, hydrophobic, which means they don't like water, and heads that are hydrophilic, so they do like water. When you put them in solution, the hydrophobic tails connect. 
the hydrophilic head groups point outwards and then they form this sphere. Looks like a soap bubble. We can see them on a microscope fatty sphere. And are these just really, really simple cells? How, how would this compare to an animal or plant cell that we might see today? Yeah, so they're super simple. So we've composed these using 14 lipids, so fatty acids, alcohols and isoprenoids. A modern cell would be composed of many different types of phospholipids, so again, larger molecules, but you would also have proteins in there, sterols. So these are all different molecules that would make up a cell membrane. And cell membranes in modern cells, they're completely active in you know, working with metabolism, allowing things in and out. What these simple cells are like, they're actually quite leaky. So that's good because when you don't have an active way of passing things across the membrane, if the cell itself is leaky, things can get across without needing to do any work, essentially. But if we can get simple enzyme-like, protein-like things into this membrane, then it can start to play a role in metabolism. Okay, and that might take us a bit closer to the cells that we know and love today. Exactly. How did you manage then to make these cellular precursors in the conditions that you have, that people haven't been able to do before? The reason we think that people haven't been able to do it before is because the approach that's been taken is a kind of standard chemistry approach where everything is kept really clean. They were using one, two and three molecules to make cells, putting them under really harsh environmental conditions of high temperatures, varying pH and different salts. And these simple cells, they don't like it. But the good thing is that at the origin of life, you would have had close to 100 of these types of molecules. So we thought, let's make things a bit more messy, a bit more realistic. So we just used 14 different lipids and we mixed them together and they were able to be stable under these conditions. Okay, so you've got a bigger variety of uh, starting components, as it were. But what about the actual conditions? Because these vents are hot and they're alkaline and they're salty, right? A lot of people confuse them with these black smoker vents, with violent black smoke coming out. They're around 350 degrees. It's much more difficult to try and form any sort of life in those. But what alkaline vents have, you're talking around 50 to 100 degrees. So we used 70 degrees seawater concentrations of salts because that's the best approximation we can have for what the the ocean would have been like back then and then the alkalinity up around ph 11 ph 12 we've used that's representative again of the fluids on the inside now without getting too philosophical these precursors aren't actually alive right yeah they're absolutely not alive what does being able to do this process tell us about how life may have started in the first place All we can do is think about what life requires. Even that in itself is a controversial topic, so lots of people don't agree on what's alive and what's not. But we can take simple things like DNA, cell membranes, metabolism, and we can try and replicate each of those by themselves in the lab. And then we can start to think about putting these together. If you can get all those components to work under conditions that are representative of your theory, then that lends more weight to the idea that that could have been where life emerged. We'll never know for sure, but we can try our best. Sean Jordan. And Sean speculates that similar events probably exist on icy bodies like Saturn's moon Enceladus, so primitive cells might be able to form there too. The work he was describing is published in Nature Ecology and Evolution. Hello, sorry to butt in, Katie here from the Naked Scientists. Did you know we make other naked shows too? The fraction of all humanity who has actually gotten a chance to see their own brain 
is very tiny, and you are welcomed to that club. So, if you enjoy musing over the mind, reflecting on thought, or frankly feel bamboozled by the brain, check out Naked Neuroscience. Well, my face hurts now, so yeah, let's go. It's spicy. <laughs> Don't go down into the creepy cellar yeah. and turn the light on. <laughs> exactly. Access the full archive via nakedscientist.com slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts. It sounds counterintuitive, but an extra hour or two asleep in bed might help to reduce the risk of becoming obese. Less sleep, on the other hand, seems to be a potent stimulus to overeat, and especially to binge on high-calorie, fatty and sugary treats. But why is this? Well, a new study by Serbi Batani, who's at San Diego State University, suggests that sleep deprivation produces a surge in the body's own cannabis-like chemicals. These are called endocannabinoids. And these, she's found, cause a region of the brain known as the insula, which controls food intake, to slacken its inhibitory grip on the brain's smell areas making the aroma of delicious treats just too tempting to resist. There is a huge body of research that suggests that chronic lack of sleep is associated with overall poor health. And there is a bunch of data showing that when you do not get enough sleep, you increase your food intake and people become more reactive to unhealthy foods and foods in particular that are high in sugar and fat that we call junk food. What we really wanted to understand was why people crave these high-fat foods after a sleepless night. Back in the past, when people Mm -hmm. first began to flush out this association between not getting enough sleep and then rebound overeating, one one Mm -hmm. speculation was that the hunger hormone ghrelin, which is produced by the stomach and is suppressed by sleep, that goes up, so there's just a rebound overeating to compensate. So is it as simple as that? It's more complicated than just like hunger hormones increasing because there are a lot of studies showing that people may not really physically feel hungry, but they still go for all those foods that are high in calories. So there has to be a different mechanism where basically it connects your sleep loss with consumption of very high calorie foods. So your brain or your body saying that I really want a donut or I really want potato chips. So you're saying that there's a switch in terms of food choices, but it's not necessarily just driven by overall increase in hunger. Exactly. And what do you think underpins that then? We definitely think that there are some brain signals that may be playing a role in overeating of not so healthy foods. And past research primarily has shown that sleep deprivation increases certain endocannabinoids. So these endocannabinoids are basically these naturally produced neurotransmitters that bind to some of the receptors in the brain and affect feeding behavior. So they're very similar to cannabis-like compounds that can cause cannabis-related munchies. On the other hand, we also kind of know that sense of smell is also really tightly related to how we choose food items. And in particular, animal studies have shown that these endocannabinoids enhance food intake by increasing the activity of brain areas that process odors. So what we thought was that maybe we can put all of this together and ask, if what people choose to eat when they are sleep-deprived is related to how the brain responds to food smells. What we found in our study was when people 
were sleep deprived, so they only slept for four hours. The following day, when we scanned their brains and made them smell these delicious food odors and also some of the non-food odors, the piriform cortex, the region of the brain where smells are processed, in that particular region, the patterns of food versus non-food odors were significantly different. So what this means in simple terms is the smell processing region, the brain goes into this hyperdrive, it sharpens the food odors for the brain so it can better differentiate between food and non-food odors. And how do you tie that to changes in the endocannabinoid system, these, these natural brain chemicals that mimic cannabis? The piriform cortex also sends signal or information out to other brain regions, in particular insula cortex. So insula receives signals that are important for food intake. And when a person is sleep deprived, signaling between the piriform cortex, the smell processing region, and the insula, that connection was not as strong. So the signaling actually reduced and we also found that because of this reduction in communication, people ended up eating more energy-dense foods. Now, how is it connected to the endocannabinoids or the neurotransmitters? When we did the blood analysis, we saw that people had certain components of this endocannabinoid system very high in the blood. And those people also consumed very high energy-density food. So putting all this together, our results suggest that the sleep deprivation really influences this endocannabinoid system, which in turn alters this connection between piriform cortex and insular cortex, and ultimately leads to a shift towards foods, which are high in calories. So that's food for thought, isn't it? Serbi Batani there, and that uh, fascinating research about why you need to spend an extra hour in bed to lose weight was actually published in the journal eLife. From dinner to drinks now and the announcement that wine buffs are sending a dozen bottles of wine into space. Now it's not a Stardonnay or a Reese Slingshot or a Mirlo, it's a dozen bottles of Bordeaux. Now regrettably for them, the astronauts won't even be allowed to drink it. To find out why on Earth, or perhaps more accurately not on Earth, you would want to do that, we're joined by scientist and wine expert Claire Bryant. Who's doing this? So uh, the space agency, NASA, are actually sending the uh, wine into space and there's a, a guy from the Bordeaux region who has a close association with them, so they've decided to send a case of Bordeaux into space. Why? <laughs> That's a very good question and I'm not sure I have an answer to it. The uh, spiel they're giving us is that it's a, an experiment where they're retaining one case of the Bordeaux in Bordeaux in a perfectly temperature-controlled cellar and they're sending the other case into space to be kept for a year on the space station. That's a case control study. A case control study where it will be stored at 18 degrees in space. Then they'll bring it back and presumably analyse it. What might happen? This is all based around the uh, ability to age a wine. So wine ageing is a really interesting concept where a, a very good quality wine, and it's only really the good quality wines that will age well, will change in texture, taste, aromas, and these factors happen over time. So a, a long maturation of wine will eventually end up with a complex, interesting product. So taking it into space, because you're changing the environment, potentially could, I guess, age a wine faster, because every, everybody would love to know away of speeding up the wine aging process because then you can sell a mature wine faster because one of the things that costs money with a wine that age is actually having to store it until it's ready to drink. 
one aspect of this is that the wine ends up on the shelf. It's it's laid down to bottle age. Yeah. Could there be some impact, therefore, of not ending up with... There must be a gradient in the wine where some of the heavier molecules will end up at the bottom, some of the sediment will end up at the bottom. People say it's a mark of a good wine if you get that nice sediment pooling yeah. at the bottom of the wine. So it sounds like it's just gratuitous marketing, doesn't it? But do you think there could be some sensible aspect of this and they well, might see some interesting chemistry? Yeah, I mean, the, the sediment that you get is due to the tannins. So, so part of the ageing process with tannins is that eventually they go from being long chains to sort of aggregates of short chains and they then form sort of sediment and the sediment drops out in the wine. But I, I think with, with sending a case for a year in space, the kind of other factors that alter the way a wine ages as well as temperature is vibration. There's clearly going to be a vibrational process taking a case into space. But also radiation. So so one of the things you do when you store wine is you store it in the dark because the UV light generates free radicals and that causes problems. So presumably they're thinking about the effects potentially of gravity or microgravity, different space radiation and what that might actually do to the way in which the wine ages because there have been booze cruises into space before haven't there this isn't this isn't a first in that respect no it's not so that the russians uh, when they went up to the mere space station i believe it was called used to smuggle vodka with them they'd actually lose weight and tuck the vodka in their their suits and then take it with them when they went into space and the moon landings, they had they had a tipple as well, didn't they? The moon landings, yeah, they took uh, the communion wine onto onto the moon with them and they poured it into the glass and it kind of climbed its way out of the glass. <laughs> so would you indulge? Are you worried at all by radiation or uh, irradiated wine? Well, and- so interestingly, there was, there was a really interesting presentation done by uh, somebody at the Royal Society of Chemistry and they, they actually talked about the effects of radiation and what it does to wine ageing. And the problem is, is that actually, instead of not actually improving the wine, it can actually make it worse because it can generate a bunch of volatile our sulfurs and that gives it a nasty smell so i'm not so sure that this is such a good idea well keep drinking down here on earth claire thanks very much this claire bryant and uh, lots of people got engaged with this one on twitter as well so adam we can see your re-slingshot your merlot and your stardonnay and raise you one mercury sling <laughs> uh, i like this one as well from uh, that was from darren phillips we've also got from joe vember at joe Brody on twitter says pinot noir bit i think she means no bit I like that one. And uh, Carl Legg, Beetle Juice. I like that one. I think that's my favourite. Now, if you've ever left a box of cereal neglected in your cupboard for months, you'll know that it takes a long time to go off. But will it last 3,000 years? It turns out that the answer is yes, or at least well enough to still read its genes, as scientists have just discovered using grain harvested more than three millennia ago. Phil Sansom. This all started with an expedition to Egypt in the 1920s. There, English archaeologists uncovered some tiny grains of emmer wheat, exquisitely preserved. This was one of the first wheats that were domesticated in the Near East around 10,000 years ago. The grains then moved to London to the Petri Museum of Egyptian Archaeology. They sat there for 100 years until a scientist from UCL saw them featured on a BBC documentary. He and his colleagues got permission from the museum to try something new, carbon date the wheat, and then analyse its DNA. We sequenced its genome of this like 3,000-year-old sample from Egypt. So it was very exciting to use a sample that had been in a museum and find new results. That is Laura Bottigay, a geneticist who was part of the team sequencing the wheat samples. What we sequenced were the husks, which are some sort of leaves that usually enclose the seed. So if you imagine a a grain, a wheat grain that has this slightly rounded shape with this beautiful golden color. Pairs of leaves, each curled around a seed that had long since been eaten away by bugs. 
The first step is to remove all the protein to free the DNA. You are in the blind when you do that because you follow the protocol pretty much like a recipe, but you do not know the result until you sequence it. It's a bit challenging. It works, though, and they produced the full genome of the ancient wheat, every single one of its genes. They found that it had many of the helpful traits that crops have today, like big seeds that stayed on the plant when it's ripe. But the scientists' main goal was to investigate how domesticated emmer wheat spread around the world. To do that, they matched modern types of wheat, what are called land races, to the ancient genome to see which were most closely related. At least to me, it was surprising that we found that the closest relatives were land races that are or were cultivated in the Arabian Peninsula and in India, not the samples that used to be cultivated in the Mediterranean. Why is that surprising? Well, it's all about how early crop technology spread around the world. This was a major transition in human history. It triggered a lot of changes in how populations lived and interactions between societies. This is sometimes called the Neolithic Revolution. And hunter-gatherer populations were replaced by agricultural populations. Scientists previously thought that when plants first got domesticated in places like the Middle East, the technology spread outwards in all directions at once, to Europe, Africa, and Asia. But this emmer wheat genome from Egypt was a way closer cousin to Asian land races than European ones. Maybe that means the technology came earlier to some areas than to others. Probably there was a first wave of expansion towards the north and then Europe. And there, there was a second wave of expansion towards uh, the south of the Mediterranean and Asia. The question is then, why would technology have moved like that? There might be a European bias going on here, but there might be something more. One of the common problems is that usually Europe is better studied than other places. If you look at archaeological sites, I think that this theory of the later replacement matches the timing of the archaeological sites that you find. But because it's an understudied area, Africa and Asia, it's understudied compared to Europe, I would say that at least it's intriguing to know why this happened at a later stage. And the other big conclusion of the study is that lots of samples in museums might actually be treasure troves of DNA, even if they're not exactly going to make a healthy and nutritious breakfast. Phil Sansom reporting on that work by Laura Batigue from Barcelona Centre for Research in Agricultural Genomics. And incidentally, one of her colleagues actually made an Emma Wheat loaf bread for himself, and he said it had a pleasant nutty taste. That research, obviously the plant genome research, not the making, the loaf, got published in the journal Nature Plants. And now it's time for the mailbox where we read out what you've been sending in to us. And uh, Tony, one of our listeners, got in touch with a question that was related to our recent Q&A. One of the experts, who was Kez Latham, who was on the programme, was talking about what a blind person 
actually sees, um, especially given that 95% of people who are legally blind still have some degree of visual perception. But Tony was asking specifically uh, a bit more. He wanted to know about people who were born blind but had a working visual cortex in their brains. So we went back to Kez and this is what she said. She said, the question is right to suggest that processing of vision in the eye and in the brain is not always exactly the same. One example of this is that it is relatively common for people with acquired sight loss due to eye problems, but with a working visual cortex, to experience visual hallucinations in their non-seeing areas of the brain. This is called Charles Bonnet syndrome. It's thought to be due to the visual cortex being bored by no longer receiving any input from the eyes, and neural excitation then creates images that the person can see. These hallucinations can be very upsetting for people, and anyone who experiences visual hallucinations related to this sort of sight loss is encouraged to contact Esme's umbrella. Uh, That's online at charlesbonnetsyndrome.uk. That's the web address for advice and support. On the other hand, Kez says, some people who are blind due to cortical problems but have no problems with the eyes themselves appear to be able to respond to visual stimuli that they do not consciously see, which is termed blind sight. This can occur after stroke, which typically affects one side of the brain and thus one side of the vision. People with blind sight can respond to stimuli presented in their blind field with an accuracy greater than chance, despite being unaware of seeing any visual stimuli. This suggests that some visual processing bypasses the usual visual pathway to the occipital cortex. However, if someone is born with no sight, their occipital cortex will not develop the ability to see input from the eye to the brain, which is needed in the first years of life to fine-tune the visual processing ability through experience. If this is lacking, then the eye pathway becomes amblyopic or lazy. But Tony Morland, who's at York University, has shown that there's some plasticity in the visual cortex in that people who are born with only one type of photoreceptor, that's like a rod or a cone in the eye, can show signs of remapping of their visual cortex to compensate. And this sort of plasticity doesn't seem to occur if the sight loss occurs later in life. Meanwhile, if you'd like to get in touch, the email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can find us on Facebook or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. And all the papers for the stories we've covered can be found online at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sounds, perfect music for audio and video productions. Now, last month, a very special multi-million dollar facility opened at Murdoch University in Perth, Western Australia. It's the Australian National Phenome Centre. It's staffed by an international team, many of them recruited from the UK, and their aim is to do for biochemistry and human health what the Large Hadron Collider has done for physics and potentially revolutionise the way we do medicine. The basic idea is to use very high-end analytical technology to sift through thousands of different molecules that you find in a human body to spot patterns or fingerprint changes in the levels of those different chemicals that predict diseases that a person hasn't got yet but they could go on to develop in years to come. We can tell something about how you are, who you are and if you have a disease from this chemical fingerprint. The dream would be to take people through from birth through the years and and build a map of their life for their biochemistry and you know their background genomics so that when somebody becomes poorly, you already know a hell of a lot about them and you would know what needs to be fixed. 
So we could actually tailor that so that we know what a particular dose should be. Um, we can take the blood or the urine of an individual and work out the concentration as is actually in there and then um, change that dose. So we do have a long-term idea for the eye toilet, right, which is where your toilet becomes intelligent and measures things that are about your health. Imagine a world where your toilet can tell if you're not totally well. Where it can tell your fridge exactly what kind of foods would put you back on the right path. A world where a quick breath sample could measure how much of a drug you actually needed or even detect diseases before they've had a chance to really hurt you. That's the world that could be opened up by phenomics, detecting disease through the hundreds of thousands of molecules in your body. But how can a field like this even work? Sam Virtue from the University of Cambridge talked me through how diseases can change you. It's important to realise that virtually every disease we now look at will have some component of metabolism to it. Metabolism is basically all of the biochemical processes that go on in our body to enable us to both live and grow. So we can think about very basically um, when we eat a meal there will be a whole series of biochemical processes that will go on. The food that we get into our body will be broken down and then rebuilt up into the molecules our body needs. So almost all diseases will lead to alterations in how the body processes nutrients, how it stores nutrients. And therefore, depending on how these nutrients change, we will be able to detect different Metabolites. A metabolite is a breakdown product of a nutrient. So we could say a metabolite of glucose. We could say the ultimate one maybe is carbon dioxide and water if we oxidize it. But there are lots of bits in between going from a glucose molecule to the carbon dioxide and water that comes out in our breath. And if we have diseases that impact on metabolism, we'll be able to detect different molecules. And those can be detected in blood. Some can be detected in sweat, in urine, and also in breath. So why does this field lay ahead of us now? Why are we now talking about smart toilets? Well, the Australian National Phenome Centre has recently opened, planning to analyse the chemicals in the bodies of millions of Australians. Chris jetted out there and got a tour of the facility and spoke to one of the people behind the whole thing, Jeremy Nicholson. The work that we're going to do here will be measuring fundamental metabolic properties of humans, both in the general population and those who are patients. And the aim of that is to understand how genes and environment come together to create disease and how that expresses itself in metabolism so that we can use that information to predict disease risks. And furthermore, when you have that sort of analytical capability to measure details. One can also use that to monitor therapeutic interventions in clinical situations to see if somebody is getting metabolically well or getting worse or nothing's happened during the what we call the patient journey. And we can use that type of monitoring approach to optimise therapies and to see what basically works for what people. So it's a personalised healthcare approach. Why is this better than just reading my genome? It's different to reading the genome. The genome tells quite a lot about potentially about future disease risks, but it also tells you about particular defects related to 
different subtypes of disease. But most diseases have a huge environmental influence. Whether you get a disease or not will be partly dependent on genes and partly dependent on how you you have your lifestyle, what you, whether you exercise, whether you, what you eat. And the vast majority of common disease is related to gene-environment interaction. So genes are not enough to stratify patients on their own. And also, when you're looking at genomics, that's very good about for classifying certain types of patients before you start the hospital journey, but your genome does not change during the hospital journey, whereas your phenome, your metabolism physiology, does. And you can therefore use that output as a representation of the success or not of the therapy. What's the strategy you're using here to actually establish the phenome of the average human in Western Australia? By doing studies, we can try and find out what normality is. I mean, what is normality and what is health? A healthy profile is the target for any therapy. So what we're trying to do is take therapies in patients that are sick and see if they move you in the direction of health that you can actually attribute to particular biochemical pathways. And therefore, you can use that as a metric of responder versus non-responder and how well that therapy is working for that person if one took a sort of visual analogy if i drew a landscape where the high and low points on that landscape correspond to how the different levels of different molecules in my body relate to each other you'd know what the normal pattern of the landscape was for a healthy in inverted commas person and if someone had mount everest in the middle of their landscape you'd know that something had gone wrong with a particular group of molecules could you therefore ask, what do I have to change about that person's environment, their lifestyle, their diet, or do I give them a pill in order to level Mount Everest so their landscape resembles a healthy one? Yes. So the thing is that in your body, you you hopefully are born healthy. And if you have a bad lifestyle, you drink too much, eat too much, whatever it is, don't exercise enough, you will move into a different physiological state. It's what we call it, you know, a, a pathophysiological state. It's not quite a disease, but it's in a different state. And it's a state that has is a pathway to disease. When you get to a certain level of pathophysiology, actually abnormal physiology, it becomes very difficult to go back. And then you get a disease. And then what you're doing is treating a disease to try and eliminate that particular problem. The first part of this is trying to build a, a map of what human physiology looks like which helps you understand where you need to get to for that population the dream would be to take people through from birth through the years and and build a map of their life for their biochemistry and you know their background genomics so that when somebody becomes poorly you already know a hell of a lot about them and you would know what needs to be fixed but furthermore if you know those people in that detail then you would also be able to prevent disease is the ultimate aspiration then to having used these very powerful analytical instruments you have here to discover what these relationships are, you then build something which is a very small, very fast analytical device that could, for instance, sit in a chemist's shop or a doctor's office or even a person's own bathroom. Indeed so. So the trick is to know what it is to put in the device. So ultimately, our discoveries within the large phenome centre will be translated into primary healthcare and potentially even into the home uh, with smaller devices to just measure the right things at, at low cost. So we do have a long-term idea for the eye toilet, right, which is where your toilet becomes intelligent and measures things that are about your health and potentially tells you that you should, you know, you need a checkup at the doctors. That would be the future. And that would have a massive change in population, not only 
the potential for detecting disease in population, but also potentially the way that people behave. Because people are often given advice by you know epidemiologists or whatever and say you know don't eat red meat, eat more fruit, and things like that. That's fine. People are really very non-compliant about that. But if you have a machine in your toilet saying you're really not very well today and you, for the following reasons, you're much more likely to – or your children look as though they might have something. You are very much more likely to action that and therefore that becomes a really major contribution to preventive medicine. But what's actually going on in the body to make this whole thing even possible? What's a phenome and what's a phenotype? Back to Sam Virch. Phenomics is the study of phenotypes. So you can have all sorts of different phenotypes. What we think of in terms of maybe phenomics and the phenotypes we're looking at, because we work on obesity and diabetes, would be things like the actual physical manifestation. So an obesity phenotype is how heavy you are or maybe your BMI. A diabetes phenotype would be do you have high blood glucose? So if we've been kind of understanding at a basic level phenomics and phenotypes for a while now. Why is something like this centre in Western Australia so, such a big deal? Because with the advance of technology, we've begun to be able to look at much more sophisticated phenotypes and in much more detail and to start looking at many, many, many different aspects of biology. So if we think about diabetes as an example, which is what I work on, the very first phenotypes for diabetes date back to the Egyptians, and it was the fact that people would have sweet-tasting urine. But diabetes is a complex disease with many, many different components interacting to lead to this ultimate clinically observable sign of high glucose. So with the proposal in Western Australia in the Phenomic Centre, what they'll be able to do is not just measure the glucose, which simply tells you someone already has diabetes and they may have had it for many years undetected, but to look at hundreds if not thousands of different molecules within the body which are all interacting as part of metabolism, to look at things like proteins, to look at things like fats and see are these things which can predict whether people will go on to develop diabetes. They can also then start to break apart this one overall classification of diabetes, i.e. you have high glucose, into different types. And this then enables us to think about targeting medically different people with different phenotypes which are leading to diabetes um, with different medicines, and we may get better clinical outcomes. Sam Virtue there. Now imagine your smart toilet has told you that you're not well. So you go to the doctor. On your doctor's desk is a little black box. With just a tiny blood sample, every problem you might have is revealed, along with a potential solution. So how will the measurements this little black box makes be made in the first place? Elaine Holmes is an analytical chemist helping to lead the initiative at the new Australian National Phenome Centre. She took Chris through how the samples will be processed in the lab. Here we are in the first stop on our sample journey. What you can see is a room, it's about your average size of a living room, and it's full of large magnets. And these magnets look, if you can imagine, a giant tearn. So each of these big tearns contain the, uh, greater than the whole of the Earth's magnetic field within the can. And so if you think in terms of the big magnets that would pull your car upwards in a, in a, in a scrap heap, 
This is way, way more powerful than those. And that has the effect of doing what to the sample as it, as it goes down inside the can? Well, the magnetic field is pretty strong and there are some chemicals, some atoms, that have a property we call spin. So they're like little bar magnets and they're spinning. And when you put them into a magnetic field, they start to line up with the field. And if you then shoot some energy in, a radio frequency pulse, it makes these little bar magnets flip. And then as they relax again, back to their their relaxed position, if you like, they're emitting energy and you pick this up. And because every chemical has different atoms, they interact with the magnetic field in a slightly different way. And these small differences we can pull apart and you end up with a series of peaks which we call our molecular fingerprint. This actually is a very quick technique. If you put your sample in, you can have a spectrum, you can have your fingerprint, if you like, within five minutes. So NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, is a very speedy way to identify lots of molecules in a single sample and to do it very cheaply. But what sorts of things can the team look for? And what does the output from the machines actually look like? Sam Lodge. So it results via a transformation into something called a spectrum, which has two axes. On the vertical axis will be intensity, so if if there's something that's very concentrated, it'll obviously have a high intensity. On the bottom axis is something called PPM, this is parts per million. This is the point at which it resonates Looking at this computer screen, this is an example of the sort of thing that the machine would generate. This looks like almost a sawtooth. And so the height of each of those peaks corresponds to how much of the substance was in the sample that you put into the machine. And and along the x-axis, these are all the different types of, of chemical that it's picking up. Yes, so it's a little bit more complicated than that. So each peak is essentially um, from a proton in a particular chemical environment. So one metabolite might have several different peaks because you might get different compounds with different um, proton environments. So how do you sort them all out then? Because that just looks like a really complicated sawtooth. How do you work out what chemicals that corresponds to? We run standards, and these standards are one particular chemical, um, and so we can get a chemical signature. I see. So you run a bunch of known chemicals through, you know what pattern they would produce, and you just compare what comes from your sample to what you know it should look like, and then you can say, oh, that's in there, that's in there, that's in there. To give a practical example then, say the doctor puts me on antibiotics. At the moment, the dose that we prescribe for people is just a standard dose for any adult. But my metabolism might be different to your metabolism. So the amount I'm taking might be different than the amount that you would actually need to take. Could you use this to work out how much antibiotic there is in my blood compared to, say, your blood, and therefore work out whether I'm metabolising it faster than yours, and therefore tailor my dose better? Yes, you can exactly do that because NMR is actually quantitative. We can monitor any drug compound within a sample, measure the concentration, so essentially we could then tailor the dose to be perfect for that particular individual. So not just your body's own molecules, but you can look at things we put into our body from outside. Yes, and it's not just drugs either, so we can look at different food compounds. So, For example, someone that eats a lot of meat would have a high amount of carnitine in their blood and their urine, Someone that's eaten a lot of fish will have a compound called TMAO, and that changes dependent on the time from consumption. So it's almost like dietary forensics. You can work out whether someone's lying to you. When they they say they've eaten certain things, you can work out what they've really eaten and even when they've eaten it. 
yes, yes, we can pick up things like alcohol, caffeine, and every food has a different marker which we can identify so we know exactly what someone's eaten. If you're not actually actively looking for those things, will they nonetheless be present in these readouts so that you could go back and look for them later? If someone, a researcher comes to you and says, well, actually, Sam, I'm doing a study on this substance in the blood and you happen to have screened a million people by then, could you go to your computer and just pull out a million people's worth of these traces and look for that particular molecule that's interesting for that researcher? Yes, you can. So the way the data, NMR data, is actually stored is that it's actually very powerful because we can run something now or in five years' time and we can overlay them and compare them. Sam Lodge. But what about the things that NMR can't tell you? Like substances present in only tiny amounts. Elaine Holmes again. So now we want to go a little bit deeper into the profile, find out a little bit more about what's in your sample. So we come to the second stage, which is our mass spectrometry laboratory. So this room's a little bit bigger, as you can see, and it's full of 16 different machines. Looks like a big, big box with a big stick coming out of the box. And these are all a type of mass spectrometer that we use to do screening. So we're trying to look at everything we can in your sample. We don't tell the machine, I want to look at fats, I want to look at sugars. We just put it in and we want to capture everything we can about the sample. Why is this used and why is this different or what does this do for you that we can't get out of the NMR machines next door? NMR machines are very reliable, so... You can measure things very accurately, but it doesn't have the capacity to go to really, really low concentrations. Maybe for other diseases, you want to look at your hormones or things that are present in very tiny concentrations. And this is where mass spectrometry comes into its own. And how do these machines work compared with what the NMR machines do? These machines still separate molecules out, but they do it in a slightly different way. So they're separated in two ways. The first is called chromatography, and that's where you put your your blood sample or your urine sample onto a column, and different chemicals stick and different chemicals go straight through. And you can then run some liquid through this, and they'll start to bleed out of the column, but at a slightly different rate. And we can catch them as they come off. You can then separate them a little further by putting them into the mass spectrometer part. And this is really just a weighing machine. All you're looking at here is how much your molecule weighs and what its charge is. How do you work out what the actual molecule is? Because if you just get a weight and you just get a charge, there are lots of different possible arrangements of atoms that could be that weight and that charge. So how do you sort them out? We have databases where we've looked at molecules and standard molecules, chemicals you can buy, so we know what some are. But you don't always know what they are. In these cases, what you need to do is separate them even further. So you've got a single chemical, and then you blast the chemical apart. You split it up and break it, and you look at the fragments, how much each little part of the molecule weighs. And like a jigsaw puzzle, you pull them all back together add all the weights up to make sense of of the whole picture. Elaine Holmes. So now we know how it all works, what sorts of questions are the team going to be tackling? Luke Wiley and Nicola Gray are two of the project scientists. 
So in terms of using these state-of-the-art platforms, we'll be looking initially to develop methodologies, making sure that those methodologies are very robust so that we can use them not only now but in years to come and they'll be able to run many, many thousands of samples and always give us the same reliable data that we need. And we rely on that information to then make our inferences as to how a disease is progressing in a particular population. We're also looking at the mechanisms behind why particular diseases occur, why particular populations are more susceptible to developing a disease. We'll be looking at how environment, um, how our lifestyle, what we eat affects that disease risk. By doing that, we can hopefully prevent a lot of these diseases from occurring. So we're, we're looking at diseases such as dementia, obesity, type 2 diabetes, big global health problems that we know are largely affected by our environment. So it's really trying to pinpoint exactly how the environment increases those risks, enabling us to reduce them and developing better therapies to reduce those disease risks. And Luke? My uh, research is going to be looking at the way people age and the way people have disease through age. In particular, looking at how that impacts our cognitive health and our, our brain health. Um, so we, what we can do is we can look at people's biological profiles and see if there are any trends in people's ageing. And if we can spot trends, perhaps we can give policy advice of what can help healthy ageing. Perhaps we can identify things that are causative of a neurodegeneration or cognitive problems as people age. So I'm very interested in looking at um, a variety of samples, um, both t- tissue and and for example urine and blood samples and just really trying to understand how people age and how their metabolism changes as people age. Because one of the goals is what we call a healthy or a longer health span rather than just lifespan because it's more a quality over quantity thing isn't it? We've become very good in the modern era at making people live for what feels like forever for some people but unfortunately they spend a significant amount of that time in ill health and we want to to minimise that. Yes, exactly. So if we can improve the quality of life, an example would be Alzheimer's disease. If we can understand the disease more and slow down the progression disease, people can have a higher quality of life for longer and we can really make real gains in people's enjoyment and life as they age. How do you go from a bunch of molecules on a graph, which is what you're going to see from from these machines in here, to practical advice for somebody. You need to eat more bananas, your potassium's a bit low. How do you actually get those sorts of conclusions out of the cocktail of chemicals that emerge from these machines? So it's it's very yeah complex and one of the biggest challenges that we will face. So once we've actually identified these molecules, we then would have to validate that. So what we would potentially do is to look at that in a a more controlled environment so it might potentially be an intervention study where um, participants would be in a very controlled environment we would give them a very specific diet and we would look to see how that would affect their metabolites and potentially disease risk markers. So you're hunting through the haystack here biochemical needles in haystacks that might be indicative of certain diseases certain risks for diseases and then once you think you've found them then you're going to intervene in people and and do a proper controlled experiment. Say, if we change those things, will we change outcomes? Exactly. The initial um, work that we complete is certainly the discovery end of of the lifespan. And as we progress and as we start to understand more about that that metabolism um, and how metabolic systems are behaving in health and disease, then we can take that forward for validation and for real intervention and make the impact. So the long-term plan is to be involved at all stages of of that process. Luke Wiley and before him, Nicola Gray. 
But it's not just about what goes on inside our bodies. You can point the powerful finger of phenomics at the food we eat too and explore how different cooking techniques will affect the nutrient quality of a meal. My name is Raylene Liu. I'm the Premier Early to Meat Korea Fellow. Currently, we don't know too much about the chemical composition of the food. When you cook them, how you cook them, that is going to change the chemical composition again. By doing all this different experiment, we can cook it differently before we put it through in the instrument. Then it can give us the full picture of it. What's the kind of vitamin that's lost? If we know those chemical compositions that have a health benefit to us, how we can maintain those molecules, that's what we want to do, really. So when I, I barbecue my chicken leg, we know it has a risk of colon cancer, but chemically we don't know why. Mm-hmm. And you're saying if we feed it into machines like this, we can work out what the molecules are yeah. that might be linked to those disease yeah. states. Yep. Yeah, so that we can see what are the changes of molecule when it's fresh, we haven't done anything to that, and compared to if we barbecue the meat, what are the changes on those? And going a step further, are you also going to ask the question, if I cook it and eat it, what yeah. effect do these different cooking methods have on my biochemistry? That's right. So because all of us have a very unique set of gut microbacteria that we, they all have a specific function. So the way, if I eat this um, piece of chicken boy, that's probably better for me because of my gut bacteria compared to somebody else. So that's what we wanted to differentiate so that we can be able to precisely tell you um, whether you're better off eating a piece of chicken boy or maybe a piece of fruit because that would be better for them. So you can debunk some of these claims about foods being extra good for you blueberries being superfoods and all this kind of thing you can actually say yes look i've got plausible scientific evidence or actually this is bunkum don't waste your money yeah so hopefully that's the goal that we wanted to be able to demythify some of these claims really and will this enable you to prescribe what actually constitutes a healthy diet one day then if i can do that that would be great that would be my aim <laughs> and a laudable and very realistic one at that so It's clear we are moving into a very exciting era for medicine, one that will enable us to keep more people living well for longer. But it's also clear that the hard work is only just beginning. We'll leave you with this from Jeremy Nicholson. Genes and environment come together to create your disease risk. They create you. The things that we want to do is understand how those come together exactly by studying the biochemistry of the body so that we understand the origins of disease and therefore can inform future healthcare policy. And when somebody becomes ill, we use the same technologies for moving someone from an unhealthy space into a healthy space, which we've already defined by the biochemistry of the whole population. Jeremy Nicholson. And there we must leave it. That's it for this week. Thanks to Adam who put the programme together. And do be sure to tune in next time when it's all things custard. Yes, you did hear that correctly. We're taking a deep dive right into desserts. The science of custard coming to the Naked Scientist next week. Any thoughts, comments or feedback in the meantime, you can address those to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Don't forget, we're running our donation drive. If you do like the programme and you would like to help us out, we would be very grateful indeed. You go to nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. We do have a target to try and hit this year. We're about halfway there. Please do help us if you can. Nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.